A few weeks ago, Pope Emeritus Benedict released a new letter commenting on Vatican II, saying that Vatican II was not only necessary, not only meaningful, but necessary. What should be our trad response to this letter? Today on the One Peter Five podcast. Jesus is King. Welcome to the One Peter Five podcast, Rebuilding Christendom, Restoring Catholic Culture and Tradition. I'm Timothy Flanders, the editor-in-chief of One Peter Five. Thank you for joining us today. I'm sorry, I, this is uh, two weeks late. I, I originally had it two, scheduled for two weeks ago, but uh, family and children were happening, so we had to push it back twice. So here we are. Let's talk about uh, Pope Emeritus Benedict before we get into the topic. As always, we need your support to pay our bills. So go to onepeter5.com slash donate. You can offer up some alms for our nonprofit organization. We do, re we do rely on your donations to pay our bills. So please donate if you benefited from One Peter 5. Also, we make our appeal this month in November to pray for the dead of the Ukraine crisis as things escalate. There's an article on the site called Russian Bishops Courageous Under Putin which highlights our Russian Catholic brethren in Russia, as well as our Catholic brethren in Ukraine. So we appeal to you, the viewers, to offer prayers for the dead on both sides of this war. And we pray for an end to hostilities, and especially for the protection of the church. The bishops have been courageous in that area, and we are simply highlighting their perspective on the war and we'll, tomorrow we'll have uh, more perspectives on the Ukraine crisis, bringing in aspects of understanding this through the lens of Fatima. So stay tuned. You can subscribe to onepeter5.com as well to get email updates for all these things. So this letter from Pope Emeritus Benedict. So we're going to go through some of the aspects of this. Um, let me pull this up on the screen here. So this is a letter just as an introduction to the, the content of the letter. This was sent to uh, Father Dave Pavanka of Franciscan University, dated October 7, 2022. And this was on the occasion of the, there was a conference at Franciscan on the ecclesiology and the thought of Joseph Ratzinger. And so he makes mention of this international symposium which is quote dealing with my ecclesiology thus placing my thinking and effort in the great stream in which it has moved end quote so we're going to talk about a trad response we've talked in this podcast before about what should be the traditional catholic response to papal actions sometimes papal actions under this pontificate unfortunately which very much confuse us or provoke us or scandalize us or scandalize the little ones. And we're going to apply those same principles to this letter. Uh, and that is the principles of piety, which is always seeing everything in the best light possible, but within reason, not uh, going beyond what the reason of the evidence indicates. And so we'll discuss a little bit today about this letter and about Vatican II. Now we are commemorating in some fashion the 60 years since Vatican II was called back in 1962 
and we've published a, a few articles on this. We're going to continue publishing. It's called a, a series called Vatican II at 60. And so we'll talk about that. At first, we want to go into a little bit deeper on the aspects that we've been discussing regarding Vatican I, which also apply to Vatican II, and the distinction that we have written about at 1 Peter 5 is the distinction between the theological meaning of a council and the historical meaning of the council. Um, shout out to Jake Che. Oh, you know what? You know what we need to do? We need to pause this whole thing and, and shout out Mass of the Ages episode two, which has been restored to YouTube. So every, everybody make sure you go to Mass of the Ages, subscribe to their YouTube channel, share episode two. It's back on YouTube. Uh, so thanks, Jake, for uh, the, the hello. Um, so what I want to do is talk about this distinction between the historical meaning of a council and the theological meaning of the council. Now, here's what I mean by that. Theology does not happen in an ivory tower, in just a, a university. It happens in this messy world, the real world, the concrete situations that we find ourselves in. And with Vatican II, especially, it is a very, very poignant and acute thing to, to bring out here. Um, what I mean to say is that there can be a theological meaning of a council, which is entirely orthodox, but the context of this, this hi history, uh, the, that the we, we find ourselves in can become extremely chaotic, messy, and even heretical, even though uh, on, on this sort of theoretical, uh, theological ivory tower, removed from the concrete situation, one can find orthodoxy. Now, let me give an example. Let us say during the Arian crisis, when there was the heresy of Arianism, which was rampant across the church, St. Jerome said the church woke up and found herself Arian. And it was the, the heresy that Jesus is not consubstantial with the Father. Jesus is a created being, the highest created being, is what the Arians said. So if, if I were to come out with a council and say, Jesus Christ is a man, in the historical context of Arianism, that would be provoking heresy. Now, the phrase, the, the sentence, Jesus Christ is a man, is not technically heretical, because it only becomes heretical if you add the phrase only. Why? Jesus Christ is only a man. That would be heretical, formally heretical. But if we say Jesus Christ is a man in the context of Arianism, historically, in the historical meaning of, of, a, of this hypothetical council, this would be promoting heresy, even though technically it's orthodox. So let me give you a real-life example. The Council of Ephesus. At the Council of Ephesus, we know that Our Lady was, pro was proclaimed as the Theotokos, and this dogma of the Theotokos, the personhood of Jesus Christ, God and man, was proclaimed. Entirely orthodox council. The problem was that the historical events of that council caused a scandal to a great deal of the church. 
during the council, St. Cyril of Alexandria used monks as shock troops to terrorize the city of Ephesus. He bribed the officials to push through the dogma, which caused a scandal. It resulted in immediately there needed to be another statement of faith agreed upon by different parties in the church because it created this massive division and this scandal to the faith because of the actions of St. Cyril and, and other people who were following him. To what degree all of those machinations were St. Cyril's doing, that's a matter of the historians to debate. But the point is that there was so much, so many machinations and uh, evil things going on at the Council of Ephesus that it became a scandal. So they needed to immediately sign a, a profession of faith to just confirm what was being said. That was between the Antiochian theologians. It was uh, uh, Bishop John of Antioch. He confirmed the Theotokos with St. Cyril of Alexandria. So there needed to be a, a profession of faith immediately after a council. So imagine that for a minute. The council comes out with the dogma, but because of all the things that went on the, at the council and there's so much confusion after the council, they needed to have another confession of faith. So this happens in 431. That's the council. 432, 433 is when this new profession of faith, it's the formula of union between Antioch and Alexandria. Now, not only that, there was another council within 20 years, another ecumenical council, the Council of Chalcedon. So we have another council within 20 years. Now, Vatican II closed in 1965. So that would be another council within 20 years. So 1985, they have another they have a, a, another ecumenical council because there's so much chaos going on. Now, we're looking at 60 years since Vatican II. So all of this is what I'm trying to say here is that you can have a, 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 a council of Ephesus, which is entirely orthodox, but all the historical shenanigans that went on caused a scandal. So what I'm going to say here is that we can even concede, we can even say, hey, we can say, okay, let's just concede for the sake of argument. Vatican II is entirely orthodox. Let's just table that for a minute. Let the theologians work that out. We can still claim, based on the history of what went on at the council, that there was a massive scandal to the faith, nevertheless. And this is this is what we need to, I, I think, focus in on, because I think a lot of people are making an argument about Vatican II where they're really focusing on the history, and they're saying the history of Vatican II caused this problem. But then people from maybe the Ratzigarian school come by and they say, no, 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 no. Well, it's entirely theologically orthodox. The hermeneutic of continuity can resolve all this stuff. But then they're talking in a more theological meaning. Well, I think, you know, the theologians can, like I said, they can debate and they can figure out whatever they want to figure out. But in the historical real world that we're, we're living in with the situation and the history of the council, it was a scandal to the faith. So we'll get into that in uh just a minute that's that's the main thing now i wanted to before we get into the history of the council i wanted to bring up two quotations here which will help us see the context of the council that brings into relief what happens all, all this sort of revolutionary activity so i want to read first from humani generis this is from pius XII, commenting on the movement of what became known as Nouvelle Théologie, or as many of them like to call themselves, Ressourcement, uh, or Communio later, 
I want to quote from Humani Generis, which is commenting on the situation in 1950. So this is more than 10 years before the council began. And this is commenting on what is real resource amount. Because as we've written about at 1 Peter 5, as trads, we need to have a, 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 a good analysis of, this, analysis of the situation. One of the oversimplifications that sometimes we bring out is we sometimes say that before Vatican II, everything was fine. Everything was great. Um, but the reality is that there, there was a lot of secularization that had already gone on by the, the, by the beginning of Vatican II. Uh, Western Europe was highly secularized, um, and there was even issues in, in theology. There was an excessive uh, among among the there, we, we talk about the the really good Thomists, the neo Thomists, uh, Gary Lagrange, but not everybody was like him. Some of them were basically getting these fast food PhDs over the over the summer, and they were just reading off of manuals. And there were issues with the way that some of the um, theology was being done before Vatican II. It, it, it did exist. Now, look at the, the moderate, very uh, very good analysis of Pius XII here. Here's what he says about correcting any theolo theological problems before Vatican II. So this is Humani Generis. Uh, this is uh, paragraph 30, okay? So here's, here's what Pius XII says. This is quoting from, this is a quote from my book, but I, this is what I quote in my book. Here's Pius XII. He says this, quote, We may clothe our philosophy in a more convenient and richer dress, make it more vigorous with a more effective terminology, divested of certain scholastic aids found less useful, prudently enrich it with the fruits of progress of the human mind. So he... Pius XII is saying, hey, I'm I'm all for ressourcement. That's great. We, we do want to sharpen our theology, develop our theology in the proper orthodox sense of that, of that term. But notice what he says, continuing on with the quotation, but never may we overthrow it or contaminate it with false principles or regard it as a great but obsolete relic, end quote. So Pius XII, what is Pius XII saying here? He's saying, yes, we can resource them all. We can bring new sources. That's This is something that you know St. Thomas Aquinas did. He brought in Aristotle. There were patristic discoveries. There's patristic discoveries in the 19th century. We've got Petrologia Graecae, Petrologia Latina. We've got Petrologia Orientalis still being published. So we have all these patristic discoveries, which we want to, we do want to enrich our theology with. That's good but we're not going to overthrow it. We're not going to throw out these things as an obsolete relic. So this is in 1950, because this is the problem. This was the danger of some of the new Vitalogy thinkers, not all like Joseph Rassiger is, I think is one of the best examples of that group, which we'll talk about in just a minute when we look at his, his letter. But the, 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 the difficulty here the danger is that there's a desire for revolution. Now, I want to bring out this quotation from Yves Congar. So this is quoted in a book called The Avant-Garde Theological Generation by John Kerwin, page 161-62. And my scan is just slightly 
a little blurry here, but so if you'll excuse the, the blurriness here, but this is the, the scan from the book. John Kerwin comments, with the ecclesiastical and cultural crisis determined, the renewal that the renewal theologians hoped for depended on overthrowing neo-scholasticism, and they worked together to do this. Okay, so remember, trads, yes, we can we can concede to, you know, Joseph Rassiger's party. We could say, hey, yes, I mean, was neo-scholasticism perfect? No, it was not perfect. Was there were there bad theologians out there who were not doing a good job? Sure. Okay. But we're not going to overthrow it. We're not going to cause this revolution. Now, listen to what Eve Congar writes here. Eve Congar quoting, One day, chatting at the entrance of the old soul choir, Shainu and I found ourselves in profound accord, at once intellectual, vital, and apostolic. On the idea of undertaking a liquidation of Baroque theology, this was a moment of intense and total spiritual union. We elaborated a plan and distributed the tasks amongst ourselves. I still have the dossier that was begun then. It was not a question of producing something negative. The rejections were only the reverse aspects that were more positive. What would a little later be called Rousseau was then at the heart of our efforts. And that Kangar goes on. Shainu and I came to a deep agreement both on this mission of bringing to fruition in the church what was good in modernism's appeal and concerns, and on the necessity of liquidating Baroque theology. We began a dossier on this theme. Some months ago, at the beginning of 1946, I said to Father Chenu that our dossier had become pointless since the Baroque theology was being liquidated every day and the Jesuits were among its most ferocious liquidators. End quote. So this term liquidate comes from the communists, it means to destroy, liquidate. It's when you liquidate your opponents, you kill them. That's what the communists do. Now, obviously, Kangar is not talking about killing people, but he is talking about doing the exact thing that Pius XII said not to do. And this is what Yves Kangar and his and Dominique Chenu are considering ressourcement, this liquidation of Baroque theology. Now, what do they mean by Baroque theology? Baroque theology is referring, that's referring to the post-Tridentine theology. So, so when we say Baroque civilization, that's talking about the uh, post-Council of Trent um, theology. And this is what uh, resourcement thinkers are critiquing. They're critiquing this Baroque theology that came after the Council of Trent and they're saying that we're either re restoring to a, a pure Thomism of St. Thomas or we're going back to the fathers. So we have this plan where they're really planning this liquidation, which is this overthrow. And this is where we have this danger that Pius XII identified in 1950. So we have this situation where we actually do have some thinkers who literally do want to overthrow things. And we see this in the historical, in the historical, yeah, TP says, if it's not Baroque, don't fix it. Yes. <laughs> uh, so we see this in the history of the council. So we talked about this theological meaning of the council and the historical meaning of the council. What we see in this letter by Benedict is that his holiness is very much focusing on the theological meaning of the council. And as trads, I think we need to emphasize that there is this historical meaning that's, in theory, is separate from the theology, but we'll talk about that. 
So let's let's read some of this letter from Pope Benedict Emeritus. Um, let me see. Pulling it up here. Okay, so Pope Benedict Emeritus writes to Father Dave Pavanka. And, and it goes right back into the, the that same year, 1946. So we have the same year where Shane Yu and Congar, where it was just, uh, we were just talking about this plan that they're, they have this plan to use the communist terminology to liquidate this theology. Uh, so in this very same year, Joseph Ratzinger began his theological study, 1946. He says this, quote, when I began to study theology in January 1946, no one thought of an ecumenical council. When Pope John XXIII announced it, to everyone's surprise, there were many doubts as to whether it would be meaningful, indeed, whether it would be possible at all to organize the insights and questions into the whole of a conciliar statement. And moving on, if I can get to the next page here. Okay, okay. Um, thus to give the church a direction for its further journey. In reality, a new council proved to be not only meaningful, but necessary. For the first time, the question of a theology of religions had shown itself in its radicality. The same is true for the relationship between faith and the world of mere reason. Both topics had not been foreseen in this way before. This explains why Vatican II at first threatened to unsettle and shake the church more than to give her a new clarity of her mission. In the meantime, the need for to reformulate the question of the nature and mission of the church has gradually become apparent. In this way, the positive power of the council is also slowly emerging. End quote. So in this, I want to emphasize one aspect of the historical meaning of the council, the historical events of the council. And that is the preparatory documents that were prepared by Pope John the 23rd. Now, both Henry Sear and uh let's see Yota Unum or Romano Mario. This is a very very good text. If you this is um put out by Angelus Press, a uh, very good text analysis from a trap perspective. And Henry Sear and Amerio both point out that John the 23rd's model for Vatican II was this Roman Synod of 1960. And then we have all these preparatory documents. And the Roman Synod of 1960 was very much a Tridentine council. It was a diocesan synod, which was promoting the Council of Trent, the uh, Roman Catechism. And so it's very much this broke theology that Shenu and Congar is, uh, they're you know trying to liquidate. And um, the, we have the preparatory documents, the so-called schemata, which were the, pre, the, the preparatory documents of Vatican II. So these documents show a traditional theology. And what we see here is we see this revolutionary liquidating force at Vatican II, because what happens is all of these schemata that took some three or four years to create under the authority of Paul or Pope John the 23rd, these are thrown out. They're thrown into the garbage, literally. All these preparatory documents, 
it, all except one, Sacrosanctum Concilium, which the later document, which becomes the document of the liturgy. That's the only one that does not get thrown out. So this is a very easy thing, I think, for trads to argue here. We're saying, yes, we, you know, we want, we do want a hermeneutic continuity because that's the only way you can look at any council. But how can you have continuity if you throw the prior document into the trash? Now, were these schemata perfect? No, they're, they're, that's that's not the point. It's not that they were, uh, you know, the final the final draft, the final document. But Pope Emeritus Benedict says that the council was not only meaningful but necessary. But I think that trads we can respectfully ask your holiness. Was it necessary to throw out the schemata to to throw them out because these were very much representative of pre-Vatican II theology? So, but if you have this liquidating revolutionary overthrow mindset, which was there among some, there is a desire to throw it out. Was that really necessary? Was it really necessary to have this action of this sort of violent rupturous action to throw those documents out trads i think would reasonably say i think not we don't think it was necessary to throw those things out because even if even if we were to just say for the sake of argument we needed to have theological developments and i i think it's reasonable to say yes we should have some resource amount that is properly done not with an overthrow revolutionary mindset but if you are going to have this liquidation mindset, you're going to throw them all out. And that is a historical, the historical meaning here. The historical meaning, think about that for a minute. You've got pre-Vatican II theology contained in all these documents. And then they just throw them in the trash. Well, what's the historical significance of that? Well, we have a situation where we're, we have people promoting rupture because you're throwing the prior documents in the trash. Those are the ones that quoted all these pre-Vatican II popes. You threw them in the trash. Was that really necessary? And we would say, no, it was not necessary. Even if we say you wanted to add all these things, you know, you know, a true development, was that really necessary? No. So this is a historical event at the council, which causes this revolutionary ferment. And this is something which causes a historical event of rupture. Now, the theologians can debate whether or not there's actually a theological rupture, a dogmatic rupture. Was, was Vatican II actually erroneous? Was it in a positive error or was it ambiguous or is it totally continuous? Continuous. The theologians to decide that. But I think we should be able to agree that throwing out the prior documents is at least on the his, bare historical level, it's creating this rupture. And this, see, notice what... Uh, his holiness says here he talks about a theological breakthrough is what he's 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 claiming here um both of these tagovs had not been foreseen in this way before and this is why vatican ii threatened to unsettle and shake the church now we would say that 
the actual the this rupturous action of throwing these documents out and the actions of people at the council, the way they acted, that is what really started to unsettle the church. Cause we had this, all this, this revolutionary action, this revolutionary time period, which certainly threatens to unsettle the church based on the historical actions here. So now we also should ask the question respectfully, your holiness, this letter is very interesting because of the way that your successor, Pope Francis, has used the justification of Vatican II to destroy Summorum Pontificum. So as, as trads, you know, we, we're dealing with all sorts of conspiracies that are going on. And we've talked about some of these with, with uh, Father Charles Murr, things that are documented, things that were investigated by the most trusted men in the Vatican, like uh, Cardinal Gagnon. So we know there are machinations of the enemies, that we know these things are documented. We need to ask the question, was this, was this letter really written by Pope Benedict? Was it redacted? Was it reformulated at all? Because this is quite interesting in a situation where Pope Benedict's successor is undermining his very work, justifying it based on Vatican II. It's simply a question that we could ask. Now, we're probably never going to answer to that, but I think it's a reasonable question to ask. So we do that with all due respect, of course, um, not trying to undermine uh, the respect due to the office or anything like that. But it's a, it's very telling and, and it's a sort of a auspicious time for the enemies of Christ who want to destroy the Latin mass. As even Joseph Ratzinger himself said, um, that they, they want to undermine the Council of Trent. Now, we should point out here, to his credit, Joseph Ratzinger, in his memoirs of Vatican II, he did not agree, going back to the uh, throwing out of the schemata, he did not agree with the throwing out of the schemata. He was a paratus for Cardinal Frings. He did not necessarily have a as much of a say in what went on. He says he did not agree with that action, but he also helped to draft the new schema of the document on Revelation. So whether or not he was, you know, under orders or whatever, you know, like, we, like I said, the traditional attitude we need to have here is we need to think the best of, of Joseph Ratzinger as much as we can. Um, unless we have, um, unless we have evidence to the contrary, but I should should give him credit where it's due, in, in at least what he says in his uh, his memoirs. Now, so we note here, looking at this this distinction between historical and theological, this part right here, we talked about unsettling. He's really talking about a theological breakthrough. Now, he mentions now the historical context a little bit later. Um, let me see, where is that? So here, here's uh, Pope Emeritus Benedict continuing. My own ecclesiologic, ecclesiological work was marked by the new situation that arose for the church in Germany after the end of the First World War. Romano Guardini described this development with the words, quote, a process of immense importance has begun. The church is awakening in souls, end quote. 
Thus, body of Christ became the supporting concept of the church, which consequently in 1943 founded its expression in the encyclical Mystici Corporis. Now, and but Benedict continues. But with its officialization, the concept of the church as the mystical body of Christ had at the same time passed its peak and was critically reconsidered. And this is this seems to be what he's going at in terms of a theology of religions. So we'll get into that in just a minute. Uh, he continues on. I'm just going to quote a little bit from the, the, the final parts of the letter. Um, he says, uh, the Kivitas Dei is not simply identical with the institution of the church. So he's talking about St. Augustine's uh, book, City of God. Uh, this is what uh, Joseph Ratzinger, he did two different dissertations. And I, I'm not actually, I'm not sure if those, if the term dissertation applies to both works, but he did one on St. Bonaventure and one on uh, St. Augustine. And so he says, he, he goes on in the letter, he says, the medieval Augustine was indeed a fatal error, which today fortunately has been finally overcome. When he's he's talking about the, the fatal error, so-called of, simply identifying the city of God with the institution of the church. So what is Pope Benedict talking about here? Now, let me first, let me bring out first the historical context, because we talked about at uh, 1 Peter 5 um, in the essays that we've been bringing out on Vatican II's 60th anniversary, um, the, the idea that Vatican II is the post-war council. And this is what Benedict makes mention here now of this historical context. So if you go below, we have the, the link to the, to the full letter. Um, and we also have a link to this article, uh, which is called The Post-War Council Turns 60. And this is all about the, the reality of the historical situation. This is critically important for us to understand. Because when you understand what Christians went through during World War II, we can actually understand a little bit why did the Catholic why did Catholics get so into ecumenism after after World War II? You know, before that was there was a, a, a great uh hesitancy and reluctance and caution by the Holy See. Well Think about this for a minute. When you're dealing with the scourge of national socialism, which is persecuting all Christians, or the scourge of communism, which is persecuting all Christians, we have a situation where when you're in a persecuted situation, Christians naturally form bonds with other Christians that they you wouldn't form in a in a situation where there's there's peace. And I, I've seen this when I when I lived in Egypt. It's a Mohammedan country, and it makes sense that Christians would stick together a little bit more than they would in the United States, for example, where you know this is freedom of religion or whatever. When you have a situation where the regime is targeting everybody and they're killing them, you know, they're putting them in camps. They're targeting them. You have, you have a situation where Christians actually start to stick together more. And that's really where I think we should see 
sympathetically, we should see the situation. I think this is kind of what seems to be implied by Pope Emeritus Benedict when he talks about this new situation post-war in post-war Germany. He talks about Guardini, this, this church awakening in souls. And so we have this situation where post-war Catholics who went through situations like this and they formed alliances during the war with not only non-Catholic Christians, but even non-Christians. And we talked about this in the article and how the much of the ressourcement thinkers, many of them were in, for example, for example, the French resistance. And they were they were working actually with communists and with existentialists because they were all fighting against national socialism together. So they were sort of fighting on the same side. So it makes sense that you form these bonds in wartime. So I think as trads, we need to understand sympathetically a little bit. Yeah, it makes a little sense why we would, we would have some of these bonds with non-Catholics here. It makes sense if you're in this wartime. But the problem is that when we get out of that historical situation, and then we're facing a new threat, it's a different sort of situation, a different sort of threat than what we were dealing with in World War II. This is what Pope Benedict Emeritus seems to be indicating when he's describing, sort of implying this, this description of the theology of religions, the theology of, this, of ecumenism, which comes out in Vatican II. So I think when we understand um, the post-war context, we can understand a little bit why they, some of them were motivated in this way. And I think Joseph Ratzinger is a good faith example, not like some, it appears, as I said, Congar and Chenu or others, Hans Kuhn, for example, were not of goodwill. They were really trying to overthrow things. Now, Joseph Ratzinger's work, his life appeared that he did actually try to maintain this continuity. But as trads, we would say to this letter, we would say, well, your holiness, uh, have you, you know, can we not consider the, the fact that the historical events of the council caused this revolution to take place because people were really trying this revolution. And Joseph Rather does, does concede this at, def, at times. Uh, you know, he, he has that famous speech after um, shortly after Vatican II, where he talks about how the church is going through this huge crisis. It's going to be a lot smaller than it, it was before. Um, so Joseph Ratzinger is, even though at times it's almost like, uh, you know, trads would, would say you're, you know, you're too, you're too much in this theological ivory tower. You're disconnected from the historical situation, but at times he really does have a good insight. Um, this especially came out in the Ratzinger report, uh, I believe it was 1985 where he was quite pessimistic about the situation. So, um, this brings up. Dominus Jesus of 2000, um, because if we look at this document of 2000, which was produced by Joseph Cardinal Ratzinger when he was head of the Holy Office, approved by John Paul II, and in fact, as uh, theologian John Joy recently argued, may be an infallible statement. This is in uh, the most recent um article by him, or one of the most recent, this was um, Disputed Questions on Papal Infallibility Part 3, in which he argues that Dominus Jesus is actually infallible because it has special a special promulgation 
which ind indicates infallibility. In any case, a very high authority, undoubtedly. And in that document, it, it brings out this sort of theology of religions, which Benedict, Benedict Emeritus seems to be implying here. And if we take him in the best possible light and we read Dominus Jesus, it states that it is erroneous to believe that the Church of Christ subsists anywhere else but the Catholic Church. There is actual grace operating outside the canonical boundaries of the Catholic Church, but this actual grace is impelling all souls to Catholic unity, to the Catholic Church. And so it is erroneous, the document says, to believe that the Holy Spirit is acting outside the canonical boundaries of the Church in any other way but to bring them to become Catholic. Now, the problem with Dominus Jesus is that, like Vatican II, like the documents of Vatican II, it's too loquacious. It's too loquacious. It's a very long document with lots of difficult words, difficult phrasing, theology. And in that sense, it's very, it has this great theological meaning. You know, it, it's, you know, theologians and PhDs. Great, great for them. But what about the the you know the 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 faithful on the ground? And this has been the situation. Now, again, um, we we need to um, give credit to Archbishop Lefebvre, who suggested at the council that there do be two two documents: one document form of document for the theologians, and one form of document for the faithful. I think this was a very good a very good uh, suggestion that unfortunately did not get enacted. But Dominus Jesus is, is a document which unfortunately suffers from lo loquacity. It's got, it's got too many words. It's, it's, it needs to just be really dumbed down and just simplified into a single statement. And that's why as trads, we would say, yes, Holy father, your holiness. Uh, even if we were to say, Hey, you know, if, if Trad theologians, Orthodox theologians can agree that there is some good insight here or there or something like that. We need to bring this down to the people, to this historical level, so that we can all understand it properly. This is, let's see, um, excuse me, I just got to block some people here. Um second person I had to block in this broadcast. Okay. Well, moving on. So this is why I think, I think as trads, we need to really uh, promote the declaration of truths. Now I'll, I'll get into this in just a minute because the other context of this whole letter from Pope Benedict, the 16th emeritus, the other context of, of course, is Vatican three, Syn the synod on synodality, which is all justified by Vatican two. And this is specifically something that Joseph Ratzinger broke from the other theologians, the other guys who were promoting this sort of Vatican III. In fact, let me see if I can bring this up really quickly. Yeah, let me let me bring this up because this is, I think, a really good quotation for trads to 
have in their back pocket <laughs> when, when we talk about these things. And that's a, it's actually a quote from Henri de Lubac. Let me bring this out. Um, this is where, here we go. Okay. So this is an important quotation from 1967. Here's uh, Henri de Lubac. Now, this is quoted by one of the trad godfathers, uh, Dietrich von Hildebrand, in his book, Trojan Horse and the City of God of 1967. But look at what Henri de Lubac says in 1967. Quote, It is clear that the church is facing a grave crisis. Under the name of the new church, the Bosconciliar Church, a different church from that of Jesus Christ is now trying to establish itself an anthropocentric society threatened with imminentist apostasy, which is allowing itself to be swept along in a movement of general abdication under the pretext of renewal, ecumenism, or adaptation. End quote. So, Henri de Lubac says, they're trying to make a new church. 1967. Now, this is what causes Henri de Lubac and... Joseph Ratzinger and people like Karl Wojtyla to break from these other theologians who were sort of victors at the council, like Hans Kuhn. And they, they had created this doc, this uh, theological journey called concilium where they were pushing for Vatican three. They were pushing for the very things that they're pushing for right now. And Joseph Ratzinger and Henri de Lubach, they broke from them. They created the communio journal Specifically because, as I, I believe it's Ratzinger who says, we should not try to continue a continuous council and just have a council forever, just conciliar, conciliar, conciliar. And that's what we have now. We've got a count, we've got a meeting about a meeting, synod on synodality. So I, I think that this this quotation way back in 67, it really brings out the concerns really of the trads, but this is the other problematic context of this letter from Pope Benedict is that we do have the very thing that Joseph Ratzinger said was a problem back in the sixties and seventies. Um, the problem how, and the, and the problem that the trads would say both Dietrich von Hildebrand and Archbishop Lefebvre, Ottaviani and others were pushing for, the same same thing that they did at the Council of Ephesus. So we had it. Remember, we had the Council of Ephesus, four thirty one, and then immediately they had a confession of faith right after that because there was a big scandal to the faith. So four thirty two, four thirty three, we have the formula of union, which tries to safeguard the situation that had, had arisen, and then only twenty years later we have an entirely new ecumenical council to safeguard the faith, and what the trads have been pushing for. Since 1965, Dietrich von Hildebrand met with Paul VI, tried to ask him to condemn heresies. And this is what the trads have been seeking ever since. And I think this is more and more what, what non-trads, or mainstream Catholic, uh, conservative, Orthodox Catholics can agree, is that we need to have a confession of faith. We're going to have the theologians the theologians are going to be debating Vatican II for 500 years. We don't have time to wait 500 years for them to resolve all these difficulties. We need to have a very clear and concise confession of faith, which will be dogmatized, which will be proclaimed, decreed. 
And this is something that has already happened with various bishops back in 2019. This was three years ago when the, the Declaration of Truths first came out. And this is, this is what I want to emphasize here, is that um, the Declaration of Truths, so this is uh, Cardinal Burke, uh, Bishop Schneider, um, and now I'm not, oh wait, I think I put it in, I'm looking for the Declaration of, oh, here we go, okay. So here's the Declaration of Truths. This was back in 2019, and I want to bring take a look at this statement. I think that this is much clearer, not loquacious. It brings this out very, very clearly so that there's no strong distinction between the historical and the theological, because we need to have both of them together. We need to have a, 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 a down to earth theological statement, which condemns all these heresies. Now the declaration of truths condemns all these different errors. Uh, Aaron's saying profession of faith like the oath against modernism. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and the pontificates, to their credit, since Vatican II, and even even Paul VI, he had his credo in 1968. He had Humanae Vitae, which is very good, of course. We're, we're happy about that. Even uh, John Paul II released a new sort of oath, some sort of oath. It's called the Oath of Fidelity, and there's new Professio Fidei. But I think the Declaration of Truths gets to these acute points. So here, here's what I've highlighted here. Number seven, because as I said, we have this post-war ecumenism, which, as I said, we can understand that to a degree. We can sympathize with that. And to a degree, if you're fighting against communists and Nazis or whatever, but we need to have the succinct clarity like this. Here's the declaration of truths. Number seven, quote, True ecumenism intends that non-Catholics should enter that unity which the Catholic Church already indestructibly possesses in virtue of the prayer of Christ, always heard by his Father, that they may be one, and which she professes in the symbol of faith, I believe, in one church. Ecumenism, therefore, may not legitimately have for its goal the establishment of a church that does not yet exist, end quote. So this is saying the, the same thing that Henri de Lubac was saying in 67. And what the, the trads have been saying all along is that they're trying to establish a different church. And this is false ecumenism. There can be no, ecumen, no, no, there can be no dialogue, no ecumenism, no anything like that, unless we're trying to convert non-Catholics to Catholicism. Because the church is already one. Now, to, again, to his credit, don, uh, you know, Jar Joseph Cardinal Ratzinger, John Paul II, in Dominus Jesus, they say as much as this, but they do it in, you know, 25 pages. This is, uh, this is you know, one sentence or two sentences, a single paragraph. This, this document, the Declaration of Truths, condemns multiple errors. This is... Um, so this is signed by Schneider, Burke. I wanted to give credit where it's due, but I'm not getting to that last page. But the point is, we need this type of profession of faith. We need to have this type of clarity. And this is what we would, I think, a reasonable trad response to His Holiness Pope Emeritus in this letter 
is to ask for this type of action from the bishops. And this is what makes the historical and theological come together. And this is what really helps us, I think, um, get through a lot of the confusion. I think declaration of truth that, you know, this is something that we can use for catechetical purposes, you know, have, have your high schoolers write an essay on the declaration of truth, you know, proving all these different points. Um, this is a great thing to do as Catholics, as laity, you know, while we ask the bishops and, and the, um, the theologians to resolve this situation. Um, what can we do, but, um, try to convert our neighbor and catechize our children. And this is a great catechetical tool. Traditional Thomas says, we need essentially a new syllabus of errors from the papacy that is similar to the declaration of truth short and to the point. Yeah, I quite agree. Peter says, I have already printed the document. Fantastic. Mary says, back in the 60s, the average Catholic in the pew did not question what they were being told. The Pope slash church says we're doing this now, and we thought that's what we have to do. No. Yeah, it, I mean, this is where at 1 Peter 5, we talk about the false spirit of Vatican I, which is where the church becomes identified with the Pope. And that, that goes to another essay of John Joy that talks about the uh, the Pope is not the church and the church is not the Pope. Very important. Uh, M. Proxima says, uh, regarding the sympathetic reading of the new situation, wouldn't professional theologians be able to see and appreciate the fact that these were bonds of wartime and not an objective expression of truth? Uh, yeah, certainly. I mean, it, certainly the situation, and this is what many theologians saw, um, but I, just in fairness, I think we can say that, you know, it's difficult to see, you know, see things that are, will arise immediately after. Um, the many, I think the, the best faith, you know, those who are not trying to liquidate Baroque theology, but I think people like Joseph Ratzinger or other people who are of, of good faith, I think, at the council, they really thought that you know, we could just kind of continue that sort of wartime alliance and uh, re-Christianize society together. And I think that it, it's not entirely unreasonable for them to think that. Um, but 60 years later, it is. We can definitely say that now. We can say oh, that that was a failed experiment. Um, so, but yeah, that's, uh, that's certainly certainly a reasonable comment, and there were you know people warning about this. The trads at the council, the Chetus Internationales Patrum, uh, were certainly warning about that. Definitely. Uh, so, just looking for any other comments or questions, thoughts uh, on this. Um, Aaron says, it's interesting that Congar was trying to redefine the church three years after Mystici Corporis coincidence. Um, and I actually, and I, and I just, in fairness, in that text, I don't know if they're what were, what year they're referring to. I know that it, it, Congar was talking about 1946. Um, and the, um, I'm not sure exactly when Congar is talking about this meeting they had, but I know he's, he's talking about 1946 later. Uh, Patricia says, didn't Benedict Ratzinger show up at Vatican II as a theological expert with his buddy, Carl Rahner? 
If so, would that not send a clear message as to where they're going with their intentions? Well, I, it seems to me that uh, now, again, to his credit, Joseph Ratzinger identified a problem with some of his allies, Hans Kuhn, namely Hans Kuhn in 1960, where he publicly rebuked Hans Kuhn because Hans Kuhn was already uh, talking about the council of sort of this democratic revolution in the church. Ratzinger said, no, that's not it's not possible. We can't do that. Um, but with people like Karl Rahner or people like Hans Kuhn, it does appear to me that there was uh, too much of an alliance with these guys, obviously, you know, <laughs> I mean, in hindsight, we're like, why didn't you just break with this guy? Like if you, if you really are, you know, having this hermeneutic continuity, you've got these guys next to you who are not at all about continuity. They're about rupture. Uh, so, I mean, all of us can say in our own lives, could I, could I have done better at that time or this place? Yes. Hans Kuhn was, Hans Kuhn was disciplined. Uh, Karl Rahner was not to my knowledge. Um, but Hans Kuhn was a lot more this sort of bombastic media personality where he was pushing a lot of this, uh, rupture. Um, Mary says, I have been listening to Father Chakata interviews and talks regarding Sedevacantism, and I have to say I'm beginning to think that there may be something to it not sold yet, though. Uh, well, the at 1 Peter 5, we do not, uh, we do consider Sedevacantism to be an error um, because it's based on the false spirit of Vatican I, hyperpapalism, which is concentrating all the power of the church into the person of the Pope and saying that he can never be an error or almost never is an error. And so if we find some error, then he must not be the Pope at all. So what we would say is that, why don't you re-examine your ideas about Vatican I? Um, because the the presupposition here with Sedevacantism is that this hyperpapalist model has been dogmatized. And we're saying, no, it has not been dogmatized. That is that is a legitimate position in some senses, not in all. Um, but if we start there, we end up in Sedevacantism already. Now, so it seems to me that they are already dogmatizing their own opinion about Vatican I. And then they are further drawing their own conclusions and they're be making themselves into the ecclesiastical judge. Whereas in situations where there are actually doubtful popes, namely the Great Western Schism, these things need to be resolved by ecclesiastical judgment um, because they're doubtful. They're doubtful matters by definition. We're not talking about dogmas of Trent, which everybody should know and teach their children. The first communicants know. Uh, we're talking about very uh, you know, dubious and doubtful theological speculations. We're talking about those things. We can't dogmatize those. Let's, let's let the theologians deal with those and figure those out. As laity, our job is to pass down the dogmas of the faith. Uh, Linden says, lots of set of contest lines have dubious apostolic succession as well, especially amongst those claiming succession from old Catholic Martoma Anglican lines. And I mean, I know there's there's all sorts of different set of contest sects, and I don't even, I'm not even familiar with all the different ones. And I mean, that, that's a great point from Linden. We're not even sure some of them 
uh, are even apostolic succession, then we have a big problem because then we don't even have priests. So that's a really good point. Shout out to Lynn Linden over at the Byzantine life. Uh, Cavasso says set of accountism is really an easy answer that leads to bigger, much bigger problems later on. Yeah, I, I quite agree with that. Uh, Peter says the Rhine flows into the Tiber. Do you know why it always, it's always like that Luther, German citizen, etc. cetera. Uh, well, the, yeah, the, I mean, the German, the German ethnic temperament. Um, I mean, my thir- first thought is the, the Prussian, um, the Prussian knights and the intensity of their uh, German um, aggression, shall we say. Uh, now, this can be a good thing when it's, when it's, you know, Heinrich Pesch, and there's you know six volume tome on economics or Ludwig Ott and his uh, you know fundamentals of the Catholic Dodra, Denzinger, um, these good Germans. You know it can be a good thing, uh, or it can be a bad thing. Obviously, you know we there's there's different ethnicities have different sort of ethnic temperaments, and these are really gifts from God that are given to us to um, as Dr. Plinio Correa says. Um, they are these different aspects of, of God's goodness that he gives to all peoples. And he, he makes everybody, um, everybody different in, in a, a different aspect of God's goodness. So why is it owes to the Germans? I mean, I think there's some, there's good Germans and there's bad Germans, unfortunately. Um, you know, I, I think of uh, the German emperor Otto II. He's the one who uh, broke the bad popes. Uh, Pope John the Twelfth, for example. So we've got we've got good Germans and bad Germans. But why is it always the Germans? Uh, I mean, it's not always the Germans, but particular histories involved and things going on uh, create situations. So, anyways, I hope this is all helpful. Um, we will we will be continuing to on on all these topics, getting into them in more detail at one Peter five in our written content. So once again, please support us one Peter five dot com slash donate. Uh, so let's. With all this, let's offer up an Ave Maria to Our Lady. Let's invoke Our Lady of Fatima under her Russian icon. This is the Russian Catholic icon of Fatima. Uh, Let's invoke her and our patrons, trusting in the intercession of Our Lady to resolve all these things, most especially in our hearts and souls, that we may remain faithful to the church, even in the darkest times. In nomine Patris et Filii Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Ave Maria, gratia plena, Dominus tecum, benedicta tuum liaribus, et benedictus fructus ventris tui, Jesus. Santa Maria, Mater Dei, ora pro nobis peccatoribus, nunc et in hora moitis nostre. Amen. Our Lady of Fatima, pray for us. Blessed Emperor Carl, pray for us. Saint Maximilian Kolbe, pray for us. In nomine Patris et Filii et Spiritus Sancti. Amen. <laughs>